pray. Our Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you for your incarnate word, Jesus, for his life, his teaching, his death, and his resurrection. And thank you for the written word which points us to him and all that he has done for us. And so we come and we bring our hearts, and as we consider those events in the garden and his arrest, speak to us again, we pray, through your word, by your spirit, for his sake. Amen. In life, it's often a good idea to know who's in charge, isn't it? If something isn't going to plan and people don't seem to know what's going on or what they're doing, we ask, who's in charge around here? Sometimes to solve a problem, we need to go to the top of the food chain. I was absolutely delighted a few years ago uh, when Justine bought me a set of pajamas and on the front of it were the words, the boss. And I thought, yeah, that's great. I was thrilled until I looked over and saw that she'd bought herself a matching pair which said on the front, the real boss. It's good to know who's in charge. But sometimes the person in charge isn't the person you think. When I was studying at Union College, we had a running joke that the person who was really in charge of the whole operation was Margaret, the receptionist, because at first we thought she's just the friendly face you see when you go into college, but it turned out she controlled everything. If you wanted to get into the college car park, if you wanted that barrier lifted, you had to be friends with Margaret. If you wanted to book a room, she was the one you went to. If any of the residents who lived in college left a mess in their room or stepped out of line, they had to deal with the wrath of Margaret. Forget the principal, forget the head of admin, Margaret was the real boss. Sometimes the person in charge isn't who you think. Sometimes the person with all the power is the one who doesn't look like it. And as we look at John 18 this morning, I wonder what you would say in response to that question. Who's really in charge? Who's in control in John 18? Because there are lots of people in the passage we read who think that they're in control or who want to be in control. Judas thinks he's in control because he is insight knowledge, doesn't he? We read it in verse two. Now Judas who betrayed him knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. I know where he's going to be. I can show you. I can name my price. I can take you there after dark so that you can arrest him away from the scrutiny of the crowd at the Passover when Jerusalem is heaving with people. I have valuable information. I have the power. I have the inside track. Judas thinks he's in control. Then there's the authorities. Now, they don't want to take any chances. This Jesus guy has slipped through their hands before, so they try to take control by having strength in numbers. It's there in verse 3. It says, So Judas came to the grove, guiding a detachment of soldiers and some officials from the chief priests and Pharisees. They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. Now, that little phrase in there, a detachment of soldiers, it actually comes from a, a Greek word, but it is a technical word, for a group of soldiers from the Roman army, a detachment had 600 soldiers in it. Now that's just crazy, and it's not what we think of when we think of Gethsemane, but that's what it says. Now some commentators do think that there were literally 600. After all, they could have drafted in more soldiers for the Passover to control the crowds. But most people think that John is just using this as a metaphor uh, in the same way that we would say, oh, there were swarms of people, or there was a crowd of them. 
I mean, what makes a crowd? 500, 1,000, 50,000 at Old Trafford? It's not precise, but the point is that there's absolutely loads of them. And here we have a detachment of Roman soldiers, a big group. It's massive overkill for the task. I mean, they're only trying to arrest a carpenter from Galilee, but they want to be in control, so they go in numbers. And if that's not enough, they take the temple guard with them. It says in verse 3 that there were some officials from the chief priests and the Pharisees. They were probably still fuming that Jesus had overturned the tables in the temple right under their noses, and somehow he'd managed to get away from them. Strength in numbers. But did you pick up the last sentence in verse 3? They were carrying torches, lanterns, and weapons. There was no need. I mean, at that time of year, the sky would have been clear. Uh, even if the sun had gone down, the moon would have been shining brightly. But they wanted to call the shots. If Jesus tries to hide among the trees in the garden, we'll have lamps and torches to find him. We'll have way too many people for the job just so that he can't escape. And just in case, we'll take some weapons too. We're going to be in control of the situation. Then there's Caiaphas, and I suppose he's a bit less obvious because he's in the background. But at the end of our reading in verse 14, they bring Jesus to Annas, the son of Caiaphas, and we're told Caiaphas was the one who had advised the Jews that it would be good if one man died for the people. Now, earlier in John's gospel, we're told that Caiaphas actually um, prophesied this information. And I think John is suggesting to us that Jesus isn't going to get a fair trial. The religious leaders have already decided this man needs to die for the people, not in the way that they think. They think that doing this is going to get rid of his followers, but it's actually going to do the opposite when Jesus dies and rises again. But they want to be in control. We're going to determine the outcome of this trial before it even begins. And then there's Simon Peter. Good old Peter, eh? He gets a very hard time in the gospel sometimes because he doesn't get it. Uh, one minute he does seem to get it, and the next he doubts. One minute he's literally walking on water, and the next he's sinking. He speaks before he thinks. I'll never deny you, Jesus, even if I have to die with you. And so to be fair to Peter, at least he's true to his word here. He stands by Jesus. He sticks up for him. He's very brave. It's also fairly stupid, but it's, it's brave because he's surrounded by a whole crowd of soldiers and the temple guard, but don't let logic get in the way of a good plan. He's going to take the bull by the horns and get Jesus out of this fighting. He tries to take control of the situation because it's not looking good. Jesus, we've got to do something here. You don't seem to be doing anything, so I'm going to try and do it. All of those people think that they have some sort of control in the situation, but there's only one person who's in complete control, and that's Jesus. I listened to a sermon a few years back, and um, the preacher said something that really stuck with me when they were talking about this passage, about the arrest and trial of Jesus. They said it was like a game of squash, where one player is much better than the other. If you're much better than your opponent at squash, you don't really have to move very much. You don't have to break a sweat. You just stay in the middle and knock the ball backwards and forwards, and you can have your opponent running around all over the place like a mad person, and you're in complete control of the game. And that's the control Jesus has here. 
He's calm. He doesn't look like he's doing very much, but he's in complete control. He has more control than Judas. Jesus knew that this olive grove, the Garden of Gethsemane, was the place that he needed to be for Judas to find him. He knew that Judas would know that he would be there. He'd engineered it that way. Again, verse 2, now Judas, who betrayed him, knew the place because Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Jesus could have gone anywhere. He could have hidden, but he didn't. He knew what was going to happen. And if we're in any doubt, we're told in verse 4 directly, Jesus, knowing all that was going to happen to him, went out and asked him, what is it you want? I've brought you here. If I knew that you were going to come, well, this is exactly where I would go. I knew that if I was here, Judas would find me. But it's not just Judas. Jesus has more control than the authorities too. I mean, they had lanterns and torches and weapons. They had brought something to bind his hands too, because we're told in verse 12 that they bind him. But their authority is nothing like his. He asks them who they're looking for. And when they answer, look at what happens in verse 5. Jesus of Nazareth, they replied, I am he, Jesus said. And Judas the traitor was standing there with them. When Jesus said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. What happens there? He tells them who they is and they, they drop back and they fall over. They fall on the ground. Jesus isn't threatened by their weapons. He's not threatened by their numbers. Just by identifying himself, just by saying those words, he can physically thrust them backwards. This isn't the first time something like this happens in Jesus' ministry. Earlier on, and we read it in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is rejected at his hometown in Nazareth. And what he says infuriates the people. And listen to what happens from Luke 4. It says, all the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off the cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. The people were, were physically restrained from throwing him off the cliff. He was just able to walk straight through them. So it doesn't matter how many soldiers there are here or that they're armed or what they're armed with. Jesus is in complete control. And he has more control than Caiaphas. After all, God gave him that vision so that he could bring all his own purposes about. And Jesus certainly has more control than Peter. He doesn't need Peter's protection. Jesus is in complete control. And from his position of complete control, he willingly gives himself up. He says to Peter, put your sword away. Shall I not drink the cup the Father has given me? Jesus allows himself to be arrested. He could get away at any time. He could remove himself from the situation with ease. He could just walk straight out of there, but he doesn't because he knows the plan. God the Father is going to win sinners like us back to himself. And to do that, Jesus needs to drink the cup and he loves us, so he does it but he's in complete control, like the squash player in the middle of the court, sending their opponent running all over the place. Now, none of the characters in our text today recognize the authority of Jesus at first, but in doing that, they act as something of a warning for us. They warn us of the dangers of not recognizing the authority of Jesus, of not acknowledging that he's in control, and of not relinquishing our grip on the idea that we should be in control of our lives. Most obviously, we're warned against a complete rejection of Jesus as the authorities did. 
They trusted in brute force, in power. They trusted in their numbers and their weapons, but in a really pitiful way. They fell away before Jesus when he spoke to them, and they only ultimately took him because he allowed it. And so there's a warning for us today, a warning not to reject Jesus, because this rejection is the root of all sin. All sin wants to say, I'm in control. God, you're not in control of my life. And so we try and find some kind of meaning, some kind of pleasure in our lives by our own means. We try and control our lives by amassing money or material things that money buys. We try and find fulfillment in those things or in relationships or in the fulfillment of uh, the approval of others or in sex or in power or in success. Whatever it is, we want to control our own destiny and all our own outcomes and our own joy. But all of those things are going to fall away before Jesus one day. We just get a glimpse of it in the garden as those soldiers, these highly trained Roman soldiers, swarms of them, armed to the teeth, they fall over when Jesus reveals himself to them. And that is a great and terrifying picture of what's going to happen to those who reject Jesus and put their hope in other things. There's also the danger of Judas. Sometimes people debate about Judas, you know. Could he have repented? Could he have been saved? I suppose in theory it might be possible, and God certainly hasn't appointed me judge over anybody, not even Judas. But the Lord is the judge, and he tells us the answer. Jesus says it would have been better for Judas if he hadn't been born. So rather than repenting, he goes off and he ends his life. It's one of the saddest moments in Scripture. Ultimately, for Judas and like those around him, he won't be able to stand when Jesus is revealed at the end. And there's a very telling little phrase at the end of verse 5 after Judas has betrayed Jesus. The NIV puts it in brackets, but it says this, and Judas the traitor was standing there with them. Judas is part of the them. He's standing very firmly on the other side. He's chosen the other side. He's part of the they who would fall back onto the ground. And the warning from Judas is equally stark to the warning that comes from the authorities because Judas has been so close to Jesus. He's seen him, he's heard him, he served him, he looked after the money, he even served in the Lord's Supper. He, he shared in the Lord's Supper, he took the Lord's Supper in that upper room, but he never yielded control of his life to Jesus. This might be relevant to some of us here today, coming to church, hearing about Jesus, singing about Jesus, maybe even serving Jesus in some way, but we've knowingly never given our lives to Jesus. Jesus said, not everyone who calls me Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, I want to be careful in what I say here, because if you're trusting in Jesus, you can have confidence in him. Do you notice what happens to the other disciples, not Judas? Look with me at verses 8 and 9. I told you that I am he, Jesus answered. If you're looking for me, then let these men go. This happened so that the words he had spoken would be fulfilled. I have not lost one of those you gave me. There's no record of any of the other disciples being arrested at this point. Yes, they deserted him for a time, but he gave them an escape. There were enough soldiers to get all of them, but Jesus is in control, and Jesus isn't going to lose any who trust in him. When I fear my faith will fail, he will hold me fast. 
When the tempter would prevail, Christ would hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path, for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last, bought by him at such a cost. He will hold me fast. If you trust in Jesus today, you're secure today. And your security doesn't depend on your ability to hold on to Jesus, but you're secure because he is holding on to you. But the Bible teaches that there are those who encounter Jesus, but who never bow the knee, never give their lives to him. And what happens to Judas is a powerful warning to any of us who rely simply on our presence here in this building or on some kind of religious activity to save us, because it doesn't. Only Jesus has the power to save us. Then there's the danger of Peter. His intentions were really good. He was trying to serve the Lord, but he tried to act on his own instead of waiting on the Lord, instead of trusting Jesus. And we're all capable of this, no matter how ludicrous we might think Peter's actions are in cutting off somebody's ear, one man fighting against possibly hundreds. That's how it really is when we don't trust the Lord. We can't take on the world by ourselves, and we have one on our side who can make all our problems fall backward onto the ground, but we think we're better than Peter, but we're not. Our position is as ludicrous as his when we try to take on the world by ourselves. I think there are two things in particular which are worth noticing about Peter. The first is that he's the only one who acts in this way. The other disciples don't join him. And when we're serving the Lord, if we do it apart from the rest of the church, that will lead to us losing touch with Jesus. Not losing our salvation, that's secure, but we displease him. We become selfish. We, be, we complain that things in church or in our service of Jesus aren't the way that we would like them to be. And we end up cold and complaining. Faith's never meant to be a solo effort. Unity in the body of Christ is important. And the second thing that's worth noticing is that Peter acts without consulting Jesus. And we're all like this. Sometimes we don't know what to do in life, and instead of turning to Jesus and asking him, we go on ahead. We don't stop to think what Jesus would want us to do in the situation. We don't think of the teaching of the Bible, or we just don't trust that it'll come through for us. We're not patient enough to wait for him. We want an answer straight away. So we go ahead and we act rashly. We find ourselves in a tricky spot, even if our ten intentions are good. If we don't wait for the Lord, we often find ourselves on a hide into nothing. But there is a solution to all of these dangers, and that solution is to bow the knee and to submit to Jesus Christ. At the end of the day, he's in control. The Bible says he sustains the universe by the word of his power. He's Lord of all. He was in control in that olive grove all those years ago. He chose obedience, and he went and he drank the cup his father gave him to drink. It wasn't weakness on his part. The soldiers didn't overpower him. He was and he is in absolute control because he is Lord of all. His Father, in his love and his power, wasn't going to let sin get in the way of his desire for us to know him and the joy of life in all its fullness with him. So he, the one in complete control, sent his Son, who even though he had authority over all the players in this story, he gave himself up to death, the punishment for our sin, so that we wouldn't have to take that punishment, and so that sin and death would no more stand as a barrier 
between us and God. As one song puts it, he drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. And so Paul says to the Philippians, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and has given him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Every knee's gonna bow to him someday, but the question we have to face up to today is, are we bowing our knee today? For those who do, they'll know the joy of bowing the knee to him on that great day, and it will be a joy. But for those who don't, that day when they bow the knee will be a painful day because judgment will loom for them. So will you bow your knee today? It might be for the first time. Maybe you've never acknowledged that you know, sin means you're not in control. Forgiveness and removal of that sin and its consequences is something that is far beyond your control. You can't do it alone, but He can. And if you trust Him today and surrender control over to Him, then the free gift He gives you is eternal life. Eternal life. It's the most amazing thing you could ever do. It seems all wrong to us because we have to give up control. We have to surrender to Him. But one of the most amazing things is that when you do this, you're completely free free from sin, free from sickness and death, free from pain. You'll still face those things in life, but you don't fear them because you have the confidence that one day as you will gladly bow the knee, you'll be free from those things forever. Or maybe this morning you're like Peter. I imagine more of us are than maybe would want to admit it. You're following Jesus, but as you listen this morning, you know there's something in your life where you need to bow the knee and submit to Christ. Something that you're holding on to. Maybe it's a sin, or maybe it's just something that you want to be in control of, and He's he's commanding you this morning, calling you this morning to let it go, and to let Him be in control. I'll be around this morning afterwards, or you can contact me during the week if you want to talk to me about giving your life to Jesus, or if you want help in letting Him have control of something you're holding on to just now but he calls us today to bow the knee, to surrender, to follow him, because he's Lord of all. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come before you as the one who is in complete control, who sustains the universe by the word of your power. And Lord, we acknowledge this morning that often in our lives, we want to be the ones in control, and we're slow to to bow the knee, We're slow to submit to your lordship. Lord, help us this morning in those areas in our lives where we want to hold on to control, to surrender completely to you, Lord. Lord, maybe for some of us this morning, we have never done that. So Lord, we ask that by your spirit, you would work in us and change us and give us new hearts and new life. Jesus, obeying hearts that want to follow him all the days of our lives. Lord, help us as we go from this place to walk in your ways, knowing Jesus as our Lord, our Savior, and our friend. And we pray in his name. Amen.